You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Romans chapter 11 this morning. We pray that you would teach us uh, through it with the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, convict us where we need it. Um, Father, I pray that we would better understand your plan this morning, a plan that you've called us to be a part of. Father, I pray that we would take the truth that we learned today, allow it to increase our faith so that we can be used for your righteous purposes by sharing that truth with others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we've been working through the book of Romans chapter by chapter. We got to chapter 8, which flows out of 6 and 7, the idea of fighting sin. Can we find victory over sin, or are we destined to wallow in our sin until Jesus comes back? And we said that Romans 8 actually communicates victory to us, not perfection, not that we can be completely set free from sin um, to where we don't sin ever. But there is a victory that's promised to us that by walking in the Spirit, spirit, we don't have to continually give in to the desires of our flesh. And then Romans 8 communicates to us God's love, that nothing can separate us from God's love, so that even in our failures, even in our midst to pursue sanctification, when we fail in that sanctification, we're secure in Christ. He foreknew us. He has destined us for glory. And then you, you would expect us to jump right to Romans chapter 12 offering our bodies as living sacrifices, and just the practicality of being a Christian. And yet what we find is chapters 9, 10, and 11, this uh, seemingly disconnected portion of Scripture that's thrown in between 8 and 12 that's all about Israel. And I told you that it's really not as disconnected as it seems, that ultimately promises are made to us in Romans chapter 8, promises that God works good, promises that God will keep his promises to us, And yet Paul anticipates, well, what about the Jewish people? What about God's chosen people? It doesn't seem like God is keeping his promises with them. Will God turn his back on us as Gentiles? Will God turn his back on the church if he's done that with Israel? And so Paul feels it necessary to communicate to us the past, the present, and the future perspective of Israel. Now this is difficult because it somewhat requires, if you're going to know the depth of chapters 9, 10, and 11, if you're going to understand the depth of what's trying to be communicated here, it necessitates you having a working knowledge of eschatology, meaning what does the future look like? Because this is ultimately about Israel. It's ultimately about judgment. Has God abandoned these people? What does their future look like? Uh, what does their future salvation look like? And in, especially in chapter 11, it really puts it in place How does this look tangibly in the future? Uh, Because there's a lot of theology, a lot of systems of theology that flow out of chapter 11. Um, The concept of rapture, the concept of seven years of tribulation, the concept of the Antichrist, uh, the concept of what is going to come out in October with the new Left Behind movie that's starring Nicolas Cage. Maybe you've heard that they're they're restarting uh, the Left Behind series. It's not really that old, but uh, a reboot for a Christian film, 
uh, is in place for October. Nicolas Cage uh, is going to be the star of that movie. If you choose to go see that film, what you're going to find is a lot of Israelite discussion. There's going to be a lot of Israel uh, and what happens to Israel contained in that movie. The reason for that is the understanding of rapture and seven years of tribulation and millennial kingdom, it flows out of what some people believe is a future for Israel that can be traced back to what we find in Romans chapter 11. So to really understand what's going on here, it necessitates you having some type of knowledge about eschatology and what scripture has to say about it. Now there's, those are things that we can disagree about. And so most of you guys are aware now, I don't see a rapture. I don't see a seven years of tribulation. I believe Jesus is coming back. I believe he's coming back one more time. We call it the second coming of Christ. And I believe when Jesus comes back, it's over, it's finished. He ushers us into eternity. You don't have to believe that. You don't have to believe that to worship here at Sovereign Hope. You don't have to believe that to be a friend of mine. Um, and so what I'm going to show you today is what we can agree on from Romans chapter 11 and then close out our time together today looking at some of the points of disagreement uh, about Israel's future and what happens to Israel. Okay, so Romans chapter 9, we looked at Israel's past. Um, has God been unfaithful to Israel? Has God failed to keep his promises with Israel? We said no, that God has been faithful, that he never intended to save all of Israel. Romans 9, Paul tells us God has always saved a remnant. God has always saved a portion of Israel. And we looked at some difficult discussion there. A lot of election talk, a lot of God choosing talk contained for us in Romans chapter 9. Ultimately, where you stand on man's free will and God's sovereignty and election, wherever you stand on that, ultimately we come to the conclusion that not everybody's getting saved. Romans chapter 9 is very clear about that. If you weren't already clear about that, Romans chapter 9 is very clear. Not everybody's getting saved. We believe that God could save everybody if he wanted to, and God chooses not to save everybody. Everybody believes that. God obviously does not save everyone. There will be people in hell. Now, we could disagree about the why. Some will um, in, emphasize more of man's free will. Well, man has rejected God. Others are going to highlight more of God's sovereign election. God has, has rejected man. But regardless, we will meet in the middle the fact that God does not save everybody. What we find from Romans chapter 9 is that God obligates himself to be glorious. He doesn't obligate himself to be universalistic, meaning God is not obligated to save everybody. He is obligated to be glorious. And what we find in Romans chapter 9 is that God has a glorious plan in place where some will experience him for eternity. Others will be banished from his presence for eternity. That leads us into Romans chapter 10, and I think Romans chapter 10 is so timely placed by Paul because if there was any tendency to come out of Romans chapter 9 thinking, oh, fatalism, everything's set in place, I can't change anything, nothing can happen in the future that, that I can do that can affect anything, so I'm just going to let it happen. Paul says, nope, Romans chapter 10, you have responsibility in God's plan. You're the tool that God uses to accomplish what he wants to do. And so Romans chapter 10 is very timely placed. It protects us from any type of hyper position that would say, I'm just going to sit back and watch God's plan unfold. No, God says you have a role to play in this plan. Uh, we looked at the responsibility for us to be zealous as we opt into God's plan, to be universalistic ourselves as we seek to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. People cannot be saved. 
Romans chapter 9, everybody that's supposed to be saved will get saved. Romans chapter 10, they won't get saved unless we go to them. And God has ordained that people will get saved, and he's ordained that they will get saved through our testimony. So it's a glorious picture of God receiving all the glory, but not choosing to do it isolated from us, that he chooses to include us in that plan where he gets glory. And so he, he graciously and mercifully calls us to be the ones to take this message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Which brings us to Romans chapter 11. We left off in Romans chapter 10 about the argument, well, maybe the reason Israel isn't saved is because they didn't hear the gospel. And Paul says, no, they heard the gospel. They had the gospel communicated to them in the Old Testament. Well, maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't get it. And Paul says, no, they got it. They understood it, and they rejected it. They rejected it. And so we have this picture at the very end where God says, um, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So then the question is asked in chapter 11 to start it off, has God rejected his people? A couple of initial um, thoughts here as I was reading through chapter 11. The first thing is that Israel's rejection is partial. It's not full. What we find here in chapter 11 is that while we would say that Israel has rejected their Messiah, not all of Israel has. It's a partial rejection. It's not a full rejection. What we see is that there is a remnant that has believed. And Israel's rejection is temporary. It's not final. There is a future for Israel we see here in chapter 11. What that future looks like, we may disagree about. But what is true and what is evident is that Israel still has a part to play in God's plan. So in your notes there, Roman number one is past encouragement for Israel. Paul starts off chapter 11 by giving us some past encouragement for Israel. Has God rejected his people? No. The question here is asked is, is God done working with Israel? The answer is, God has not fully rejected Israel. Is God done working with Israel? The answer is no. God has not fully rejected Israel. He has not rejected those whom he foreknew. Look what he says here. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, does that mean, is he answering the question that God has not rejected national Israel? No, I don't think so. I think he's saying that there is an Israel that exists within inside the bigger Israel. Remember in chapter 9, he says, not all Israel is Israel. And Paul begins to introduce us to this idea that there is national Israel, and then there's believing Israel. There's physical descendants of Abraham, and there's spiritual descendants of Abraham. And Paul's saying, God has not rejected the Israel inside of Israel. Those that he foreknew, those that were described in chapter 9, those that are made additional promises in chapter 8, remember those whom he foreknew, he's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. They've been given the promises of justification, sanctification, glorification. Paul says those that make up Israel, that true Israel, God has not rejected. He foreknew them. And by foreknowing them, he has made promises. He has, he has obligated himself to not just foreknow them, but to glorify them, according to Romans chapter 8. Paul says, they have not been rejected. And he gives us some examples. Example number one, Paul, the recent remnant. 
So Paul describes for us this, this remnant, this Israel inside of bigger Israel. And the example that he first gives is himself, Paul. He was a present example that God was still working with Israel. Paul says, I'm proof that God is not done with us. Paul says, in the midst of me being a Gentile missionary, I'm taking the gospel to Gentiles. I'm bringing it first to the Jews, but honestly, the Jews have been rejecting me city to city, and that's forced me to take it to the Gentiles. And Paul says, I'm an example that while we're seeing a mass influx of Gentile salvations, God's not done with the Jewish people because I'm a Jew. I'm recently converted. Paul says, if God had rejected us completely, I wouldn't be a Christian right now. I wouldn't be a follower of Jesus. I would have stayed in my blind state. But God came in. Christ met me on that road to Damascus. He opened my eyes spiritually because he shut them physically, right? So he's blind on the road, but spiritually his eyes are open now to Christ. Paul says, he's clearly not done with us because I'm a Jew and I'm a Christian. The second example he gives is a history of remnants. Paul does what he's already done when he referred to Jacob and Esau back in chapter 9 when he talked about Pharaoh and Moses. Remember, he was showing to us that sometimes God works in some people and he doesn't work in others. Remember, Moses and Pharaoh, national leaders, both of them sinful, right? Both of them sinful. Moses is a murderer. Moses has all kinds of doubts. Moses first tells God, no, I'm not going back to Egypt. But God keeps pressing and keeps working in Moses' heart and uses him. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not letting your people go. And God hardens him. And we're not told why he does one for Moses and the other for Pharaoh. But what we are told is that God works one way in some people and another way in other people for his glory. And he refers to a historical setting once again to show us that God is working in national Israel, but he's working specifically in a spiritual Israel that exists within that larger group. He says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. This is right after Elijah has the big victory on Mount Carmel where he calls down fire and just obliterates all the Baal prophets and makes them look really silly in front of all their worshipers, and Jezebel gets mad, and so Elijah has to run and flee, and then he gets into this point of discouragement where he's just, I don't, I think I'm the only one left that even, that even acknowledges Yahweh. So he's trying to be faithful, but in the midst of trying to be faithful, he's ignored the fact that God is working in his midst around him through other ministries, through other people. So he's saying, God, I'm the only one left. Everybody in Israel has rejected you. And God says, that's not true. I've got 7,000 people that have not bowed down to Baal. God says, I always have a remnant. I always have a group of people that are saved. I'm saving people out of that national Israel. So Paul could have easily said, man, all these Gentiles are getting saved. I'm the only Jew, apparently, that's left that, that still acknowledges Yahweh. Paul says, there's a remnant right now. There's a Jewish remnant. Even though it looks on the surface like it's just Gentiles that are coming to Christ, there are Jewish people that are responding as well, which brings us to that third example, a present remnant. A present remnant. A present-day Jewish group of believers that are chosen by grace. 
Paul says in verse 5, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul says, even in the midst right now where it seems like God is not at work in Israel, he is working. There is a remnant. There is a remnant that's being saved. God always has a believing minority, and he always has a blinded majority. That's been the case throughout history, and Paul keeps referring back to that. Why? To offer encouragement to Israel moving forward. That God has not abandoned them. God has not been unfaithful to them. God has not failed to keep his promises. He's always been saving that, that minority within the majority. He's doing that in the church as well, right? Like even in, the, in, in what we would consider the evangelical churches in America and across the world, there are people that make up our churches that are not part of the remnant. Especially here in the United States where it doesn't cost anything to come to church and be a part of the Christian movement. There are people that make up our churches and then there are people that really are the church in the midst of that. We call that the church with a capital C, the universal church. Those that are truly believers. So even, you know, even in the midst of what we're experiencing today, there's a remnant within a larger majority. There are people that are blinded that come to church every Sunday that have never yielded themselves to the grace of the gospel. But there's a remnant that will always exist until Jesus comes back. So even though the church may become perverted, even though false teachers will arise within our churches as promised in First and Second Thessalonians, promised in the book of Jude that we've already been through recently, there will always be a believing remnant that is here, ready and welcoming the return of Jesus Christ. Paul says there's a believing remnant right now, or there are a group of people that will get saved right now that makes up a portion of Israel. So his encouragement is to not be discouraged in thinking that God has rejected his people. The implications from this section, number one, God has been saving all that he planned to by grace, not works. God has been saving all that he planned to by grace, not works. It's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Number two, God has been hardening those that were not going to be saved. So what we're getting from this is that all along, God has not lost anybody. There's never been anybody that God intended to save in Israel's past that he failed to save. There's never been anybody in Israel's past that were supposed to get saved that opted not to get saved. God has secured, and Jesus promises this, all that the Father has given me will come to me. I'm not going to miss out on anybody. I'm not going to lose anybody. Nobody's going to snatch anybody out of God's hand. So Paul's encouragement here is, look, don't, don't fret. Everything is just as it should be. Everything is just as God planned it to be. People in Israel's past, even though it looks like mass rejection, there has always been people that God was saving out of that majority. 
And he's continuing to do it today, Paul says. There's a believing remnant even now that I'm a part of that God is saving from national Israel. And he's hardening those that were never going to get saved. And then thirdly, God will fully save those whom he foreknew of Israel. God will fully save those whom he foreknew of Israel. And we highlighted that by, by looking back at Romans 8. He foreknew them, he'll glorify them. Paul says God has not rejected his people. He has foreknown a group of people in Israel, and he will save those people. Now, I believe Paul's even referencing Israelites that were yet to get saved. I think Paul's encouragement is, hey, there are people right now that are supposed to get saved that are Jewish. And, it's, and I think he's saying, this is why I labor so intensely to move from city to city to reach that remnant, to reach that group of people that God has foreknown that are destined for salvation. Remember, there were times when Paul wasn't allowed to leave or Paul was discouraged in cities. Book of Acts references this, where, Paul, where God tells Paul, there are people here. There are people here that will hear your message and be saved. Paul says there's a remnant right now that needs the gospel because they're destined to be saved. We come to the next section where God gives present admonishment to the Gentiles. Present admonishment for the Gentiles. And he starts this section by asking a question. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? The question is, what was the purpose of Israel's stumble? What was the purpose of Israel's stumble? And then out of that question, has Israel fallen flat? Has Israel fallen flat? And the answer is no. Their fall was with purpose. What's the purpose of Israel stumbling? Have they fallen flat? The answer is no, their fall was with purpose. So yes, there's been a stumble. We've talked about this before. The Israelites stumbled over the Messiah. Jesus was not what they expected to be. He was not what they were anticipating. In all their understanding of the Old Testament, they had missed it. They had missed it. And so Jesus shows up and they stumble over the stumbling block, Paul tells us. But in stumbling, have they completely wiped out? Have they completely fallen flat on their face? Is there any getting up to this stumbling? And Paul assures us that there is. That yes, they've stumbled, but no, they have not fallen flat. That there is purpose within this stumbling. Look what Paul says. By no means have they stumbled in order that they might fall. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Purpose number one in your notes there for Israel's stumbling. Purpose number one, Israel's fall has won the Gentiles. What we're going to see here is a, is a, uh, a series of victories that God is winning. A series of victories that God is winning. Remember, we said the big difference between Old Testament and New Testament from a covenantal standpoint is that there's a mass influx of Gentiles in the New Testament. That the people that are God's people begin to spill out for the first time really in the way that God intended 
by sharing the gospel with those around them. They become the light that Israel was supposed to be in the Old Testament. And Gentiles start getting saved in masses in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it's dark and dreary for Gentile nations. God is primarily working within Israel. And even within that, there's a lot of rejection. And we've seen that there's a remnant. But from the Gentile standpoint, there's not a whole lot of good going on that we're at least made aware of in the Old Testament accounts. But through Israel stumbling over the Messiah, through Israel not accepting Paul and the early Christians and the early disciples that bring the gospel, it opens the door wide open for Gentiles to come to Christ. So through Israel's fall, there's a victory won by Christ, and it's a victory over Gentile hearts. A promise that's always been in place that that on the day of judgment and then ushering us into eternity, there will be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping Christ forever. And that door gets swung wide open here in the New Testament as Gentiles start coming in masses to Christ. So the purpose of, of Israel stumbling, first of all, is to win the Gentiles. But in winning the Gentiles, it says that God makes Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? The second purpose is that the Gentile victory is winning the Jews. That part of Christ's purpose in Israel's stumbling is ultimately to win them. It's to lead them in a straight path. So Israel thinks they're trying to get to Christ. They're trying to do it by works. They stumble over the Messiah who says it's not by works, it's by grace. It's by trusting in me who does it for you. Israel stumbles over that. So the gospel goes to the Gentiles. The Gentiles get saved. And by doing that, Christ actually reaches the Jewish heart in a way that hadn't been happening before. So Paul says, Israel becomes jealous because now the Gentiles are receiving what was intended for the nation of Israel and was really only being given to the remnant in Israel. It says now that the Jewish people see this, they start to get jealous and begin coming to Christ. And then ultimately, if their failure meant such good things for the Gentiles, imagine how much more good will happen with their full inclusion. Which brings us to purpose number three. Jewish victory will complete the victory. Jewish victory will complete the victory. So here's God's method for winning the world to Christ. Is that he causes his national people to stumble over the Messiah. It opens the door for Gentiles to get saved. Gentiles get saved. Makes Israel jealous. So the Gentiles benefit from the failure. Now the Jewish people get saved. And Paul's communicating, it pretty much wraps it up. If there's anybody still out there that's supposed to get saved, by seeing Gentiles get saved and by seeing Jewish people who initially rejected Jesus now come to Jesus, that entices those people to get saved that were still out there lingering. And now everybody is fully included that's supposed to be included in God's plan. All the victories are won, all the hearts are won, and Christ receives all the glory for it. Paul says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in so much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. (coughs) I magnify my ministry 
in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, some people would say that this happens in the future. That before Jesus comes back or as Jesus comes back, there's a, a huge revival amongst the Jewish people. And tons of Israelites get saved, either right before Jesus comes back, which a lot of people that believe in that uh, pre-trib, pre-mill perspective would say, okay, the Gentiles leave the earth, Jewish people are left, there's seven years of tribulation, Antichrist is on the scene but the Jewish people don't really fall to that deception. They recognize that they missed Christ. And so during that seven years, tons of Jewish people get saved. But what I read here is that Paul says the time is now for this. Because Paul says, I've got a ministry. And by ministering to the Gentiles, I'm trying to make the Jewish people jealous. Because ultimately, we saw from Romans chapter 9, I'm ready to give up my salvation to get Jewish people saved. I don't think Paul's alluding to some distant, far-off future prophecy here. I think he's saying the time is now. The time is now for the Jewish people to be one. And I am laboring hard to see that happen. I am working tirelessly, yes, because I want you Gentiles to be saved, but ultimately because I want the Jewish people to be jealous of what I'm doing with you guys so that they too will be saved. Paul sees himself as participating in this promise of Israel's future. He sees himself participating in it. He says, I've got a role to play in this Jewish reconciliation. But then that admonishment for the Gentiles really sets in. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant Toward the branches. So in your implication section there in your notes, number one, do not become prideful about your inclusion in God's plan. Don't become prideful in your inclusion in God's plan. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. They do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The second implication for us is do not become unfaithful and forfeit your inclusion in God's plan. Do not become prideful about your inclusion in God's plan and do not become unfaithful and forfeit your inclusion in God's plan. Now this can be a confusing section because he's talking about trees and branches and roots and other branches that are being brought into this tree and uh, he doesn't give full explanation for what all this represents. Uh, most conservative people would say that the root picture here can be traced back to the patriarchs, those initial believers in the Old Testament that these promises came to, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that they were kind of the foundation being laid, and, and most would see this, this tree as a picture of God's people, a picture of God's people that ultimately includes natural branches, 
So the physical descendants of Abraham that are true believers, those that aren't believers have been broken off. They've been, they've been rejected. And God has grafted in new branches, the Gentile believers, to be a part of this tree, to be a part of this picture of God's people. And Paul says, don't get arrogant in thinking that there's something special about you Gentiles just because you accepted the Messiah and you see Jewish people not accepting the Messiah. Because let's be honest, there's, there's still natural branches that are there. There's always been a saved Jewish remnant. It all flows from those initial believing, uh, believing of the promises by Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. So you are not in and of yourself special as though you have a reason to boast because you're a small piece of a much bigger picture of God's people. But then there's also this promise that these broken off branches can get back in. They can get back in. Look what he says. Verse 24. Or no, verse uh, 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their own belief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul says, which is harder to take a tree, a branch that never belonged to the tree, and, and join it together to where it grows from that tree, or to take a branch that was originally a part of the tree that was broken off and put that back on? He says, clearly these people have not been rejected fully. They can be grafted back into what God's doing. But as I've shared with you previously when we looked at eschatology and covenant theology and what all this means working together, we don't have two trees here. And that's, the, that's, that's what led me away from seeing a rapture and a pre-tribulational type thing going on. Because that view flows from the perspective that God has two people, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's doing separate things with them. And so when Jesus comes back for the rapture, the Gentiles leave, and then God continues to work with the Jewish people, and then the Jewish people stay here on earth where they rule and reign with Jesus, and the Gentiles have a home in heaven that Christ prepared for them. And what we end up seeing from a lot of people that, that hold to that view is that the Gentiles and the Jews stay separated, that they're two separate peoples of God. But what I see here in Romans chapter 11 is that God is uniting. He's uniting the remnant Israel not the national Israel, but the remnant that was part of national Israel. He's grafting in Gentiles, and he's making one people. And if these rejected Jews want to get back in, what we're going to see here in a minute, they get back in the same way the Gentiles got in. That it's not a separate plan with separate purposes, that it's one plan, and if the Jews want in, they come by grace, not by works. They come by Christ, not by sacrifices with the temple. That it's the gospel that saves them. It's the gospel that grafts them in to God's plan. But the admonition to us as Gentiles is don't be prideful about this. I mean, how can you be prideful when you find out that Paul's using Gentiles to save Jewish people, right? Like, like you're a tool. You're a tool. I'm sharing the gospel with you so that Jewish people get saved. And then to, to, to keep the Jewish people from being boastful, it's, we're saving you so that anybody else that's still out there will then get saved too. So everybody is, is being used by God for his glory to bring more people to him. So in no way does anybody have grounds to stand on in, look at me, I opted into God's plan. Now you were brought here. You were brought here and then we're using you to bring more people here. 
Paul says, don't be prideful, don't be arrogant, and don't do what Israel did and move in a direction of unbelief because we'll break you off too. Now, does that mean you can lose your salvation? Because I thought Romans chapter 8 said nothing can separate us from God's love. And that's true. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And God loves us so much to put divine ordained warnings like this to make sure that we don't move to unbelief so that he doesn't have a reason to break us off. We've talked about those warning passages in Hebrews and how God puts warning passages in there telling Christians to persevere and says, if you don't persevere, then you won't receive glory. But we know from Romans 8, if he foreknew me, then I'm going to receive glory. So how does that work together? Well, God ordains warnings to keep you on track so that you do reach glory. If you're a Christian, you never lose your salvation. Why? Because God warns you not to lose it. God warns you not to lose it, and so you don't lose it. God warns you not to lose it so that he accomplishes what he always intended to accomplish in your life. It's that merging of sovereignty and responsibility and how we want to separate them, and we really can't. And when we try to merge sovereignty and responsibility, it doesn't always make sense. But it's the picture that God gives us in his word. The future hope of Israel, the last section here. So Paul says they've not been rejected. There's a current remnant, and anybody that's been broken off can get back into this. They can get back into this, but there's some contingencies here. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, Paul doesn't ask a question here, but I've inserted a question for me based on this section. Will Israel be saved? Is there hope for Israel? Will Israel be saved? And the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. There will be a remnant that is saved. And there will be a majority that will not be saved. I don't see any indication here that changes what we're already seeing playing out. In no way do I see anywhere that God communicates that all of Israel is ever going to be saved. It will continue to be a remnant. So the answer is yes and no. Israel will be saved, the remnant, and national Israel, the majority, won't be saved because they'll continue to reject the truth. It's a partial hardening, which means that there are many that will come to Christ. Verse 26, in this way all Israel will be saved. Now when he says all Israel, I believe he's talking about that Israel that's within inside the larger Israel. All the remnant, all those that are foreknown will be saved. Look at the prophecy. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We see some contingencies here to be Israel being saved. The first one, to be saved, Israel must come in faith. 
Israel must come in faith. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. So you don't get grafted in just because you're an Israelite, just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham. No, the only way to get grafted back in is through belief, through faith in Christ. The only way that the Gentiles were ever grafted in was because belief in Christ. So there's a contingency. The only way Israel has a hope, if you're an Israel, if you're a Jew, the only way you have a hope of a future, it's not because promises were made to national Israel, it's because you opt into the promises that God made through faith. The second contingency, to be saved, Israel must acknowledge Christ. Christ is their deliverer. Christ is their savior. And he remains a stumbling block for much of the Jewish world today. He's not the Messiah to them. He's not their deliverer. He's not the the, the lamb. He's not the ultimate sacrifice. I can't imagine the frustration that a Jewish person feels right now not being able to offer sacrifices for their sins, not having a temple to go to. Because they don't believe that, like, like the book of Hebrews says, that sacrifices have been done away with because Christ came and fulfilled it. They believe that their sacrifices are being hindered because the Muslims have overtaken their area for the temple. And if they had their way, they would be offering sacrifices. Christ is still a stumbling block, and the only way they get grafted back in is is if Christ becomes their deliverer, and they acknowledge him as their deliverer, the same as the Gentiles. Their salvation is the same as us. They don't have a separate plan, a separate purpose, or a separate way to get to Christ. It's through faith. It's through Christ. Thirdly, the contingency to be saved, Israel must obey the gospel. Must obey the gospel. I told you earlier, I think that Paul's referencing both current Jewish Christians at that time, but also future Jewish Christians that were yet to become Christians. Because look what he says in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Paul's saying these guys are enemies of the gospel right now. They're not believers, but they're part of the elected group. They're part of who God is going to save, and they are beloved by God, and they're going to be saved. Paul says that's why I'm working for their salvation, because right now they look like enemies, but eternally they're not. They're going to respond to the gospel. That's how they're going to be grafted back in. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The implications for this, number one, God can be trusted because he obligates himself to save through election. God can be trusted because he obligates himself to save through election. That's what we find in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is that God is going to save everyone that he intends to save. Nobody is lost. Nobody fails to come to him. Nobody gets left out. Everyone that's supposed to hear the gospel will hear the gospel because the fact is not everybody's going to hear the gospel. People are dying today that have never heard Christ, that have never heard salvation through Jesus Christ. But nobody will die today that is planned before the foundation of the world to be a part of God's people. Nobody will die today 
that's in that group that's supposed to be saved, that's supposed to hear the gospel. And the only way they hear is if we take it to them. And God has ordained that we would be the ones to take it to them. In the same way that we have to remain faithful to the end to be saved, and God ordains the warnings to keep us faithful, God ordains us to be the ones to take the gospel to these people. Secondly, God can be trusted because he obligates himself to save through covenant. He's made promises. He's made a covenant. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then lastly, God can be trusted because he obligates himself to save through Christ and the gospel. God is not going to fail to save you. God's plan is not going to deteriorate. He sent Christ in all of his wisdom. His plan is so intricately put together. You can trust. You can trust in your salvation. You can trust that God's plans will be fulfilled. Because he will not lose. He planned way too much by sending Christ. He will not lose. Now the areas that that we may disagree on in this passage. So what we see is is that there's there's a future for Israel. There's a hope for Israel. Israel has not been rejected. But to what does that look like? To what extent does that look like? There's the the future restoration of Israel perspective that there's something magnificent coming in the future. And a lot of people that hold to that believe that the temple will be be rebuilt, sacrifices will be reinstituted, uh, Jesus will sit on a throne um, and and basically lead the nation of Israel for a thousand years before he finally defeats Satan and sin and evil. So he'll come back, set up a throne, thousand years people will be offering sacrifices basically it'll look like old testament times but with the rightful king on the throne that's the future restoration perspective the other perspective or or alternate perspective would be the historical remnant view that view says that yes there's a future hope for israel and it's the same future hope that's always been in place that god has always been saving a remnant and god will continue to save a remnant from jewish people until jesus comes back So to what extent does this salvation happen to Israel? Do we mean Israel as individuals or Israel as a nation? That future restoration perspective would say that there's a national, a national plan for Israel. The historical remnant perspective would say there's a future for individuals that are a part of Israel, that are a part of that remnant. When does this salvation happen for Israel? That future restoration would say it's primarily going to happen way in the future. When tons and tons and tons of Israelites come to say come to uh, to Christ for salvation, the historical remnant perspective would say that that's going on right now. The result of this salvation is there a plan to reestablish the Old Testament system and keep the Old Testament promises literally? That future restoration perspective would look to that. The historical remnant perspective would say no that God has united Israel and the Gentiles into one people that he will rule and reign over when he returns for all eternity, that everything in the Old Testament was meant to point to Christ, that those things have now passed away. Some things to remember in, in wrestling through how much future does Israel have. Romans 9 reminds us that 
Israel isn't saved nationally because not, God never intended to save all of Israel. He always intended to save a portion of Israel. And that those promises apply to that remnant. Romans 9, 6, the real Israel. So my view on this, what, is, what, are we, what are we looking forward to with the Jewish people? God is saving Israel progressively and individually throughout history and will continue to do so until he returns. And God is saving Israel through the gospel to join already saved Israel and Gentiles. Their future salvation looks just like ours. So if somebody were to ask me, is, is God done with Israel? No, God's not done with Israel. Well, what does that look like? What do we mean that God's not done with Israel? I believe that God is going to continue to save people of Jewish descent until Jesus returns. And I'm at least open to the fact that that's going to progressively get more and more as we get closer to the return of Christ. So I'm not prohibiting the, the idea that there's going to be a ton of Jewish people to get saved right before Jesus comes back. That may be the case, that may not be the case. But Paul was not going to sit back and say, that's definitely going to happen in the future and only in the future. Paul says, I'm going to be a part of that plan right now. God is saving a remnant before he comes back. And there may be a bunch of them that get saved right before Jesus comes back. But what Paul makes clear to us is, they will be getting saved, even in Paul's time, even through our time, until Jesus comes back. So 9, 10, and 11, it's heavy on Israel. It's heavy on Israel's past, present, and future. What do we take away from chapters 9, 10, and 11? What's the application for us? And I want to get your thoughts on this as we close today. What are some points of application that you would say, hey, we can take this away. In, in learning more about Israel and how God's been working in Israel, here's some points of application that our church can glean and take away from this even though we're not Israel, even though we're not of Jewish descent? What are some points of application that you guys see over the past couple of weeks that we could take away from this? Any thoughts on that? And if not, we'll just do Romans chapter 9 next week, Romans chapter 10 the next week, and we'll just go back and do it again. Any thoughts on points of application for this? Mm -hmm. 
which which sounds funny to say that because you know we want to be multicultural we want to take the gospel to everybody and so it would be it sounds weird to say and we really want to focus on a certain race but but honestly i think i think we should our awareness should be raised if we have the privilege of of being in the company of somebody who is of jewish descent um Right. And we have promises right here that even if all the Gentiles that we've ever shared the gospel with rejected it, we have promises that there are Jewish people that are supposed to get saved before Jesus comes back. Um, anybody, does anybody know anybody like, that you would consider fully uh, Jew, Jewish blood? Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, probably for a lot of us, we don't know a lot of Jewish people, or we don't, they haven't identified themselves as Jewish people to us, so maybe we do know some, but we just have never connected the dots that, hey, this guy's Jewish. Um, but I don't want to dismiss the fact that Paul has made promises and that these people do descend from Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They are a part of God's national people, and God had purposes for that. Remember when we talked about covenant theology, there were purposes for God calling out a nation to uh, set aside a group of people that the Messiah would come through, that he would specifically communicate things about himself to. So let's don't just discount the fact that maybe, you know, if I'm right, and I, and, I, and I may be wrong about this, but if God does not have a future for national Israel, that should not take away from the purposes that he had for national Israel in the past. And it should not take away from the urgency to share the gospel with those that come from national Israel because God communicates to us here in chapter 11. He does have a plan and purpose in mind for them. Other applications that we could take from 9, 10, and 11 for our church. Good. Yep.
other points of application that we could take today? think when I, when I look at this, and we'll close with this, um, <clears throat> I see so much intricate detail in God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ for his glory forever. You know, we talk about the gospel, and it, sometimes on the surface it may just seem real simple. Hey, God wants to save man from his sin. But then when you really start looking at 9, 10, and 11, you see how much planning has gone into this, how much thought has gone into this, and that's how Paul closes this chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I mean, Paul's praising God, and he's saying, you're the only one that could have figured this out. You're the only one that could have figured out how to save all these people. When the Jews were stumbling over you, when the Gentiles were blinded to you, 
You use the Jewish stumbling to bring the Gentiles, which then in turn brings the Jews, which then in turn brings those that were left. Only you could have figured that out in all your wisdom. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Which I think leaves that door open of, hey, I might be wrong about the future of Israel here, because I don't fully understand God's mind. I don't fully understand his counsel. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Nobody paid God off to do the plan this way. God doesn't owe anybody. He's not obligated to show mercy to anybody. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So what I see from this is just the intricate detail to God's plan and the assurance in Romans chapter 8 that God's plan will happen. That's the knowledge that we have, the knowledge that Adam was just talking about. And the question that I'm left with is how can we not be zealous in light of this knowledge when we know the plan works, that God is going to save a mass amount of people for his glory? We know that he's going to do that. How can we not be zealous to participate in that plan? How can we lose sight of it and think that my life is all about my career or, or my marital choices or my family? How can we lose sight of the fact that we have been grafted in to a glorious plan that extends throughout all of history? And we are a small blip, a small piece of a branch that's been grafted in. How can we not be zealous to bring others into this plan because that's ultimately how we worship God to to the fullest extent the Jewish people on the surface looked like they were worshiping him but they weren't bringing anybody along with them what we find in the New Testament is to really worship we bring others with us to the throne to submit to the king I want to close today by praying for um, our brothers and sisters at Snowbird they start summer camp tomorrow um, and if you don't have the Snowbird app, you can download that on your phone. It's available both in the Google, what's their store called? Google Play. Okay, so you, if, you're, if you're one of those with that type of phone, you can get that in the Google Play, Ben. Um, everybody else can get it in the iTunes uh, store. You can download that. It's free. It's got the camp schedule. It's got their blog. There's a list of summer staffers. There's a list of servant staff. There's a list of the breakout sessions, when they're teaching their breakout sessions, uh, we want to specifically be, be, in, be in prayer for both Rob and Spencer um, because they're going to be having a heavy teaching load this summer in the area of um, breakouts. So we want to be in prayer for them. Uh, as we did last year, we want to be in prayer for their wives because they're entering into a busy, busy time for their family. Um, and there's a lot of transition going on in the lives of both Rob, Sean, and Spencer, their wives and their kids. Uh, Rob and Sarah have just bought a house um, so they're trying to get that established and settled in the midst of starting camp. Uh, Spencer and Amy are in the process of adopting from Haiti. So they're, they've got, you know, that that they want to be attentive to, but they've also got summer campers coming. Uh, Sean and Bethany are in the process of adopting as well from the states. Uh, so just a lot of things going on in their families uh, in addition to all the responsibilities that are coming this week for camp um, and then in the, in the weeks following. And there are partners. There are partners in the gospel. And while we're going to have opportunities this week to share, and you guys were faithful to share this morning how you've been faithful to share the gospel recently, tomorrow they're going to have hundreds and hundreds of campers walk onto their property. And that's going to be the case for the next 10 weeks. And they're going to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to share the gospel. 
And if we believe what we find in 9, 10, and 11, there's a remnant that's coming to camp this summer, a remnant that will be saved, but a remnant that will be saved in answers to our prayer and in answers to the faithfulness of these guys to share the gospel. So we pray believing, but we pray also assuming responsibility that we're called to participate in this great plan, this gospel plan for God to save. So uh, I'm going to pray for us as we close out this morning, and, and I wanted to, to specifically focus our attention on these guys and the gospel endeavors they have moving forward uh, this summer. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for the ministry at Snowbird. We thank you for how they have been faithful to serve us um, in these years of our church plant uh, with both Rob, Sean, and Spencer serving as our external elders. God, I thank you for the love that they have had for me and the, the time and energy that they've poured into me over the years investing in my life. Um, Father, I pray that uh, you would uh, empower them now with the strength and the energy and the perseverance they need as they get ready to start summer camp. Father, as students are preparing to come, both this week and in the coming weeks, Father, I pray that you would prepare their hearts. Father, as, as Rob and, and Spencer have the opportunity to speak, God, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit, that they would speak truth, but that they would speak it in an effective way where hearts are drawn to you. Father, I pray that you would give them wisdom and grace in the conversations they have, both with the staff, with students, with youth pastors. Father, I pray for the youth pastors that are coming this summer, that they would embrace their responsibility to continue, to continue the, the ministry that these kids are going to be introduced to at Snowbird this summer for those that are going to get saved. God, I pray for the youth pastors to be diligent with the discipleship responsibilities that they're going to have. And God, I pray for Rob and Spencer and Sean and their families in the midst of this busy season, God, that these men would continue to lead their families well. They would continue to invest in their wives and their children. God, as they're seeking to expand their families, both with house purchases and with adoptions, God, I pray that they would be able to give attention to both those responsibilities at home and their ministry responsibilities. God, we ultimately pray that you would be honored and glorified this summer at Snowbird. God, give these wives and these children patience as they have to watch their husbands and daddies leave for extended time. God, I pray that it would not, uh, it would not affect the unity of their family. But instead, Father, I pray that these children would see just how precious Christ is and how precious the gospel is to their daddies. And God, I pray that you would raise up these children to be a part of your plan as well, that they would both embrace the gospel and be faithful communicators of the gospel to those around the world. So God, we thank you for your plan of salvation. We're thankful that you have allowed us to be a part of that plan because we know it's not of anything that, that we deserve and, and we know that we have no basis to boast this morning. It's only by your grace and mercy that we can be a part of your family. And so, Father, we thank you for that this morning. Help us to be zealous in our participation in that plan to share Christ with others as we wait for you, your son, Jesus Christ, to return. Let me ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.